the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, Yost Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey. With me today, as always, is my lovely co-host, Steve Tramer. That's right. I'm here just like I am every week. Hi, everybody. You're, you're not Nadia Oxford. Uh, no, not today I'm not. <laughs> I, I mean, you could be. You just might be, could be uh, Steve Tramer. I, I don't know. Whatever. It'd be super weird if I was Nadia, though. <laughs> Uh, Nadia is out. She is at Otakon like a nerd, uh, presumably getting dressed up and cosplaying. Um, wish her the best. She'll be back next week. But this week, I, I thought this was a good chance to catch up with our old friend Steve, who was last here during GDC for our annual Let's Drink Too Much Beer and like talk about a lot of RPG-related things. Steve uh, contacted me, I don't know, back in like april probably and was like oh my god cat near automata i i gotta talk to you about it and he also wanted to rant a little bit about persona 5 because i guess you're not a big fan of persona 5 yeah, i've since i finished it i've been spending some time thinking about it i think it's maybe better than i initially gave it credit for but i still don't think it's super great um but yeah so i mean you you and nadia have probably talked a lot about both these games already right so you've probably done plenty of chatter about Nier and especially Persona 5. Um, not as much as you would think. And then I'm sure like, I'm sure our audience is like rolling their eyes and banging their heads against the uh, their tables right now. <laughs> like even like at the mention of that, because we have talked a lot about Persona in general, but because I have not finished Persona 5, like I've been holding back a bit. She has finished it though. Oh, okay. That's and I've even considered doing like a... Uh, we did the Persona 4 Golden Report, um, uh, as you may recall. I was thinking about doing a Persona 5 report, um, but separately. Oh, where did you leave off in the game? Uh, I left I left off after the second dungeon, so oh, whoa. after so the art museum. You totally didn't hit the stuff in that game that I have the biggest problems with. And is, it the, stuff in that game is it the homophobia really stuff or the, so, uh, the gay caricatures? Like, that stuff is a problem, but when I say the problems in that game, what I'm talking about more are just general story and design mm-hmm. problems. Um, there's a really great 40-hour game somewhere in the 120 hours I played of Persona 5, and unfortunately, you stopped like pretty much right at the point where you start hitting all of the stuff that gets really boring for a really long time. Um, there's So there was this, if you just want to jump right into it, um, well, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. So there was this, I think that you and Nadia maybe wrote an article about it on the site when it first showed up. There was um, a website that I unforget, unfor- blah, 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 blah. <laughs> unfortunately forget the name of, which was about the uh, the missteps in the, trans- in the yes. localization of Persona 5. Um, so, I mean, like, people can just go and look at that. I've got my own problems with the localization. I think that this was a very difficult game to localize. Um, not just because it was a mostly new team at Atlas working on it, from what I understand, but also because this is a game that doesn't really lend itself very well to localization like at all, um, or at least not the way that the Persona series has been localized since Persona 3 onwards. Because this is a game that I've come to the conclusion is it's very specifically designed 
for this exact period in time for the exact audience it was marketed to in Japan. Um, and it's really the stuff at the very end of the game that makes that super clear uh, when it becomes just this crazy polemic on personal responsibility and the necessity of the youth of Japan to become engaged in the political process. Like, that's literally what the last 20 hours of the game is about. Um, Not a bad then, polemic, uh, if all things considered, especially considering what's going on in Japan. <laughs> no, it's super good. I mean, especially because, yeah, like, the stuff going on in Japan politically has been not great for, I don't know, a decade? Certainly longer than that because of the lost decade in the 90s. Um, but that also means that there's this other interesting problem with the game where I don't think that it'll end up aging very well because the amount of context that you're given for what the world is like and who the people are and the social status and relationships of the characters, like a lot of that stuff just relies on baseline assumptions and knowledge of what is happening in Japan right now, which makes it hard to localize. And it also means that 10, 15 years from now, it might even be hard for somebody who lives in Japan to just pick this game up and play it unless they lived through this period. Um, Right. Like I'm not. They're, they're, I mean, he said that he made the game in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. Like they were making a totally different game, and then the earthquake happened, and they just like turned around and started making something completely new. Because yeah, I mean, the, the earthquake was very politically charged. Yeah, like the, the aftermath was, and everything. Um, yeah. Which which earthquake are you thinking of? Uh, I was avoiding saying it because I didn't want to screw up the pronunciation. The Tohoku earthquake or the Tohoku earthquake? Um, oh, okay. So the one that was uh, after Fukushima, but also had like really disastrous effects. Uh, I think it was the Fukushima earthquake. Oh, it was. But, it was part of the earthquake. That but I think that's the, the name plant. of it. So that's the official name of it. But I could be wrong. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I understand why they would scrap their work and then immediately go go in on this because this is obviously a very pointed response to the way that Abe's government um, like handles the just the the way that they interact with social responsibility and the way that they kind of want to dictate control over certain types of behaviors in Japan um, and the the end of the game like the last five to ten hours of the game to address that very, very directly. Um, not through, like, you know, just straight-up political stuff, although uh, the guy who's trying to become prime minister is sort of the the Palace Six guy. I'm Spoiler alert. The guy who is the dude who shows up that sends you to Juvie is the person who is the final boss. I mean, um, they were making it kind of obvious, like, yeah, even that, at the relatively early point in the game, like, it was like... Oh yeah, like this game is all about people who abuse power, and that is that guy is clearly like a big shot who is the ultimate expression of of the abuse of power. So yeah, so it's it's actually about two things. It's about the abuse of power, and it's about how the abdication of personal responsibility enables that abuse of power. Um, I think that it sends some really weird mixed messages at the very end of the game about this, but that might be a localization thing. Um, and you haven't finished the game yet, so I don't want to get too deep into it because sure. it was actually like a really nice surprise. Um, but also, yeah, it doesn't, the way that it engages with it is also 
it finally leaves the the quote unquote real world and it goes like deep into the Shin Megami Tensei uh, Gnosticism as allegory for modern Tokyo stuff. And that's where the game gets really good, and that's like 10 or 15 hours of this 120-hour game. So what um, you're saying is that it belabors the point um, at the expense of like the really, really good stuff. Yeah, and the thing is, like those other hours of the game would be fine if I cared about the characters, or if they were written well, or if they had any personality traits, or were consistently characterized at all. Um, I know that it's a major theme of the Persona series that like when they when these crazy teens go into the dungeon that's when they put on their personas and they interact differently than they do in the real world and it's about how they come to discover themselves blah 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 but in this game it's super weird because there's the characters who exist in the real world there's the characters who exist in the metaverse there's the characters who exist in the cutscenes and then there's the characters who exist in the incidental Mentos dialogue excuse me Mementos we all called it <laughs> Mentos, Mentos fresh house. Mentos yeah. fresh dialogue yeah, and those are all stylized completely differently, and they all talk in different ways, and they all behave differently, and it's it just drove me crazy. Um, the one character who comes across as having the most consistent behavior and personality is Yusuke, um, who I really loved. Like, he's the one character who I really got into in this game. And I think a big part of that is that um, his original dialogue in Japanese is meant to be this overly stylized, super formal way of speaking, which just lends itself really well to direct translation with little localization in it, because that's how that comes off in English, too. So it's like, I think that there's a reason why he's the best written character, and it's not because the localization is great, it's because the localization is flawed in like really unfortunate ways. Um, but yeah, I, like it's a fine game. All of the man, all of the mechanics stuff is really great. Like I loved all of the mechanics. That stuff was fun. The story stuff, which is the stuff that I really loved about the earlier Persona games, not as much. So you were talking about how you weren't sure that it was going to age particularly well uh, because it's so tied to a particular moment in time. Yeah. Um, I think especially the idea of um, abdication of personal responsibility, enabling corruption and that kind of thing and abuse of power is a universal theme that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. And if anything is apt to get a lot worse. Yeah. So I think that the themes are very resonant. The thing that I think is the problem is the context that it gives you for all of the characters um, because the characters don't really have a lot of their backstory sketched in and they, if, coming to understand their basic personalities really relies on an understanding of, oh, this character was in this sort of social situation in Japanese teenage culture at this time. Um, like Ryuji. Ryuji is a character who, to me, looks like just the most white-bred, lame-ass idiot who buys a bad religion CD, because that's what that character looks like in America. In Japan, there's a totally different context to this kid who was the star of his track team and then punched a teacher. Which actually, and then I don't know. Sarah blonde, and yeah. started like going with the the kind of the Shibuya punk look. Yeah, and also, by the way, it's unclear whether or not he actually did punch the teacher because that part of the localization made me very confused. <laughs> no, they said that he explicitly punched the teacher, and that's why the track team turned on him because he. <sighs> Because yeah. he, he like, 
he lost his temper, hit the teacher, and that gave uh, yeah, and him that gave carte blanche. The, yeah. yeah, that gave Kamashita the excuse to get rid of him. Yep. Yeah, that's when I sort of assumed happened, but the way that one, there was like one particular line that Kamashita delivers. Oh, it's about whether or not he broke Ryuji's leg. That's what it mm. is. I was un, I was unsure if Ryuji broke his leg, Kamashita broke his leg, or if he never broke his leg because of the way this one line, like this one incidental line in the game is translated. It was really weird and unfortunate. But that's, you know, like it's, I'm not going to try and harp on the localization too much, like I said, <laughs> but I did. So you're not, so you have problems with Persona 5, but you're like kind of over the moon about Nier Automata, which came out at about the same time. And yeah. I assume that a lot of that is to do for the same reasons that a lot of people, other people have liked it. Yeah, it's, Nier Automata is a really singular game in a lot of ways. Like Yoko Taro, I think is, um, I'll, I'll be honest, I had no idea who he was before this year. I'd never really? played Nier. I'd never followed any of the Drakengard games or anything like that. Um, now I think he might be like one of the last really singular Arturs still working in the Japanese studio system. Um, because his games are so weird. His interviews are always really fascinating and candid in a way that I think the Square Enix PR machine would normally try and shut down. Um and he's just content to just kind of let him be himself yeah which is honestly the right decision because he's such a fascinating guy um but Automata is it's a game that's deeply humanist um because it's the story of what happens several thousand years after all humanity is gone and what machines replace that with and it's so I've heard from a lot of people like and the other thing that I think is fascinating about this game is a bunch of people have way different readings of the story. Um, like I think that it's about finding personal responsibility and meaning. I have friends who've read the entire game as a critique of um, consumerism. I've had friends who've read it as a critique of gender roles and identity. Like there's a lot of stuff that, you can choose to unpack from the story and themes of this game because it's it's not exactly ambiguous, but it gives you a lot to work with. Um, and also it helps that it's, it's a platinum game. Like, it's not a top-tier platinum game. It's like Bayonetta Baby Edition. Um, but <laughs> the combat is engaging enough to kind of pull you through that, through to that first ending, ending A, and then at that point, either you're hooked and you want to go through the other ending, the other main endings, uh, endings B, C, D, and E, or you kind of just know that it's not your thing. Um, and the, it gets the combat gets a little repetitive, but the world is always really fun and beautiful to explore. Um, the soundtrack is great; it has legitimately maybe the best video game soundtrack of all time. Wow, um, that's high praise right there. Have you put, have you heard it? I have not really heard it. No. Oh, it's so good. You really need to play this game. Um, and it's it's just really good. It's a game that is more about what it makes you feel than about any kind of particular storyline. Um, to give away anything of the plot, in fact, aside from kind of the broad strokes of what the game opens up with, could almost be considered a spoiler because a lot of the joy of this game is 
finding out where things go and what happens and how things connect to each other. Um, but yeah, the general premise is that it's the year, it's like the year 11,742 11, or something like that. It's some crazy number in the future. Um, it takes place about 7,000 years after the first game, uh, which is, by the way, that if you haven't played it, you could totally skip it. Like, watch a Let's Play or something if you really want to. There's a couple of cute callbacks in uh, on Automata, but it's not necessary. You played um, the first year, right? I did. I played this, it all like, the way year. through. Yeah, I played through it in January and February because I I played the demo of uh, Automata, and I got really excited, and I was like, oh, I really want to play the, the prequel to this because a bunch of my friends had said it's so good. And I did, but that game is a real slog to play. It is, like, the combat is almost unbearably bad. Um, but the story and the characters is what pulled me through that one. It's like the exact opposite situation of Persona 5. Um, but to the story of Automata is humanity is gone uh, from the Earth. There are supposedly humans still living on the moon. And they've constructed this fleet of androids that live in a space base to reclaim the Earth from the machine organisms that have taken it over. Uh, the machines that have taken it over at behest of their masters, the aliens. And that's really the entire setup for the game. Um, you play as 2B, the android who is a battle unit that is sent down to the surface along with 9S to essentially do reconnaissance missions on what the machines are up to. And the story just goes from there. Like it's, It is a really great game. Um, even if the pre and the premise itself just is so insane and ambitious in a way that a lot of games aren't like, there aren't very many games that would say, yeah, it takes place on earth, but 10,000 years from now, the people who, the people who seem to have really embraced your automata are, seem like the kind of people who a, uh, are maybe out a little bit on traditional game design, which I, I think maybe kind of applies to you, Steve, and also are really into games that are self-aware. <laughs> yeah, so this game has a little bit of both of that, but I would say that it's it's actually a really accessible game. Um, it plays and feels like a mainstream action game. It's the story content that I would consider to be really out there, and I think that's kind of the thing that makes this game special um like undertale is another game that i is another rpg that i really loved that i would consider another one of my favorite games but it's not a game i would recommend to everyone because it is really offbeat and to engage with it actually can take a lot of effort if that's not your thing i would be able to recommend near automata to pretty much anyone i think because it's an action game that just happens to have all this other crazy stuff in it it makes sense that you would bring up uh, Undertale because they, my understanding is that they're pretty similar in a lot of respects. Uh, and um, also their creators also seem kind of similar because <laughs> if you interview um, uh, Yoko Taro, uh, I mean, he's, he's not like an unpleasant guy or anything, but he's very blunt in a way that maybe I'm not used to when I'm interviewing uh, Japanese developers and that kind of thing. Um but like maybe even more blunt than usual. Like he just says directly what's on his mind and he, <laughs> he will say something that maybe betrays a certain level of melancholy or existential dread. Yeah. Um, and welcome to near automata because that is what that whole game is. It's, 
it can be very direct. Um, it's not particularly subtle in the ways that it wants to communicate the existential horrors of existence. I don't think, I think subtlety can be overrated at times. <laughs> yeah, it's, it has its moments of subtlety, and there are certain ways that it performs its plot turns or its reveals with a, a certain kind of grace. But then there are also the moments where, like, you'll just see a robot jump off the top of a tower after saying that it finds no meaning in life and wants to die. <laughs> like, that, that's the kind of game it is. It does both of those things. And it's really... What's the best way to put it? I think it's a it's a really interesting thing to explore in a game. Um, another thing that Nier did was, uh, the original Nier was, it had a lot to say about player agency and the role of the player's avatar as, like, mass murderer. Um, and Yes, Nier this Automata, is a common theme going back to Drakengard. Yeah, and Nier Automata doesn't actually really want to engage with that as much. It wants to engage with the idea that's more about you can, like you you do these things because it is your mission and your purpose but it never really it never calls you bad for doing it it never calls into question why you would want to do it it's it's sort of a given fact that this is a video game with combat mechanics so you will do it it's it's a game that's evolved beyond the point of making the player feel bad about playing a game um, which is a lot of what a lot of games that want to engage with philosophical concepts about agency like to do. Um, going you're playing a video game. You're a bad person. Go read right, a I've, thousand page philosophy textbook instead. Uh, yeah, I know. It's like that's, <laughs> and that's the primary way that games have engaged with that, right? Like all the way back to Marathon 2 and then um, some of the Shock games, especially Bioshock and then like Spec Ops The Line and. Um, and then there were a couple like Hotline Miami and there's all these games that want to make you feel bad for playing them because playing them feels good and Yoko Taro to his credit seems to have realized that that's kind of a stupid argument you play games to have fun because they're fun and then the like what do you what else can you convey to the player outside of just oh you're you're beating up dudes and that's really what Nier Automata is good at like the mechanics don't there are a couple points in the game where the command, where the combat mechanics communicate something really important, but for the most part, it's dialogue driven. And then there's another mechanic um, that's not related to combat introduced much later that has more to do with the story. It's just so yeah, I think it's a, a unique and inventive game, and I think that people are going to learn a lot from it in terms of story design. But we're not really going to start seeing the effects of it for, I don't know, a half decade or more, and I think it's even questionable if we'll see effects of it outside of the Japanese development, like the mainstream AAA Japanese development scene. I'd it might have a bigger it'll effect be, on it. I'd wait for it to be a cult classic. Oh, it's definitely going to be a cult classic. It's going to be on like a bazillion end-of-year lists mm -hmm. as one of the best games. Um, I'm fairly certain of that because there were so many journalists, too, who were just over the moon about it. Indeed. Uh, as for me... I fully intend to play Nier Automata at some point in the near future, though I better get my, I better get in gear because uh, the fall is coming up really soon. And like September, I was looking at the list of games coming out in September. I was mildly horrified by all the games that are coming out. But Yeah, all of that hot Switch content is going to start hitting <laughs> at the end of the month. 
And as for Persona 5, I I like Persona 5, um, and I don't mind playing it, but I, I think the thing, one thing that kind of bothered, maybe doesn't bother me, but I find a little tiresome is the very large gaps in interaction where there's a lot of times where you're just watching an interactive novel. And this is something that they do in Persona 3 and Persona 4 as well. Um, but I, I, I like, I, I've told Nadia more than once that I prefer uh, mechanics and battle systems and that kind of thing to storytelling. And a lot of that is because in RPGs, um, storytelling can often be kind of static and doesn't have a lot of interaction, and I think Persona is an extreme example of that. Yeah, and Persona 5... Even when you're making decisions. Even when you're making decisions. It's really bad about that, and I think, now that I'm thinking about it, the thing that maybe exacerbates that feeling is your dumbass magic cat who always (laughs) wants you to go to bed at, like, 9 o'clock. I mean, I mean, gotta get to bed. Yeah, I know. You're so tired today. Let's go to sleep. Yeah, and you would rather just be going out and soaking in the hot tubs with uh, all the uh, Japanese men? Yeah, and also it's someone else pointed this out to me that like the Persona Three is about is literally about it's midnight. You need to stay up all night to fight monsters before you go to school tomorrow. And Persona Five is about school's over. Let's maybe go fight a couple of monsters and then you have to go to bed early. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's one thing I always liked about Persona 3 was the time management aspect actually did make you feel pretty tense a lot of the time um, because often you could not get to the top without getting fatigued where later games you could just much more easily blow through an entire area. Yeah, Persona 5 has actually got that problem a little bit. Um, It tries to play it down by occasionally you'll encounter a metaverse obstacle where you have to go back to the real world to Mm. have an interaction with a particular character or whatever. But like, I think the longest that it took me to get through one of the palaces that because it was gated was three in-game days, Mm -hmm. which is not very long at all. No, absolutely not. And then once you beat the dungeon, it's, of course, it's like killing time until the next one. Yeah, which gets... That's the other thing about Persona 5, is the stuff that you do in your off time just d- never feels as engaging to me. Well, speaking of battle systems, the original intent of this podcast was to discuss them, because uh, that the genesis of that, of course, was our Twitter discussion a few weeks ago. And I wanted to delve a little more into that. So that's what we're going to do in the next segment. So stick around, don't go away, and we'll be right back. All right, and we are back. And the, the top, we're going to hit the main topic of this podcast uh, this week which is RPG battle systems. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the history of battle systems and some of the characteristics and some of the notable battle systems and kind of ask what makes a good battle system? And what is our favorite battle system? And that's, that is not just uh, Japanese RPG battle systems, by the way, we'll also be talking a little bit about PC RPGs. But uh, just for a little context, Steve is the one um, of the two of us who like, 
plays the really esoteric, really interesting, like roguelikes and that kind of thing. And his his, his own like experiences go back a long way. As for me, like I didn't really get into RPGs as a genre until the 90s. And of course, if you've listened to this podcast any time at all, you would know that the majority of my background is in the Japanese side, though, of course, Steve likes those as well. Um, yeah. But I mean, let's talk about the early days of RPG battle systems, Steve. I mean, yeah. so I mean, you can you can go ahead and dig into this a little bit, and I'll kind of uh, supplement wherever you feel like it. Indeed. So, at, in in the beginning, in the beginning, there were war games, and war games made us think tactically. They they made us like I mean, they weren't just board games. Like there, people used to get together on the weekend. People like Tom Clancy used to get together and like just play out like military scenarios and that kind of thing. And this goes all the way back, I believe, to like the Civil War or something to that effect. Um, Yeah, so war games date back to, I think even earlier than that, um, there's actually like a really detailed history of German war games. I think that they were started to be used in officer training programs in Germany, like in the early 19th century. Um, Like we're talking around the era of the War of 1812 and stuff. (laughs) I mean, this is like one of the earliest examples of gaming, as it were. Um, and then, of course, we have D&D, which comes around in the early 70s and starts to get us get us thinking about stats and dice rolls and that kind of thing. This, yeah, of course, D- being in a period um, when, you know, we, we have like, what, space war? <laughs> we have like tennis. Like, the games were very primitive and were primarily around sports, right? Or shooters, yeah, and also uh, even D and D itself. If, I know that it was based on Gary Gygax's Chainmail, um, which I'm trying to remember whether that was also kind of a proto RPG system, or if it was actually meant to be a medieval tabletop gaming system. Um, I do know that it was much more closely aligned with the ideas of traditional early '70s war games that involved counters and chits and more detailed maps and stuff. Some of the like very earliest RPGs were mostly programmed, of course, as we know, on mainframes, which like the Plato mainframe, primarily in the seventies, by board nerds who would get time on the university mainframe and use that time to make games that would eventually go quote unquote viral. And interestingly enough, they were kind of like MMORPGs, like that you could get like a ten-person party and actually like go out. And, you know, take on dungeons, almost as if you were playing D&D, but in a very, very simple kind of online context, which I found really interesting. So are you talking more about like MUD systems or are yeah. you thinking of something else? Yeah, MUD the systems. The very earliest kind of versions of these. Like, um, yeah, so MUDs are still around. Um, I just remember seeing uh, Jen Frank if you remember her from the one-up days. She was introducing her husband to the Discworld MUD, I uh, think. Two or three weeks ago, she was talking about. <laughs> so those things are still up and running. They yeah. still have very active player bases. I um, played the Redwall Mud back in the day. Yeah, I think I did too. And uh, that's actually <laughs> muds are still where a lot of the um, terminology for um, MMOs comes from. Like that's where mob comes from. That's where proc comes from. That's where like a whole bunch aggro comes from. Um, where all of those millions of terms that you've probably used in World of Warcraft originally came from those games. 
but a an early example of an RPG battle system in the 70s might have come from like Temple of Apshai, which was a, kind of a hybrid between turn-based and real-time strategy. Uh, you could talk a monster out of a fight. You could use a bow to attack from afar. Um, and if you don't attack, the monster will often just move regardless. Um, and there was a fatigue system, so you would have to rest. It, it was pretty complicated. And a lot of these games, uh, both roguelikes like Moria and um, Angband and all of these, um, as well as games like Wizardry, borrowed heavily from D&D and, of course, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yep. Um, that's, and that's really the tradition of Western fantasy RPGs from the very beginning up until... Like, basically up until Dragon Age Inquisition, which itself is kind of arguably even Tolkien-esque. I know that it's more based on Game of Thrones, but um, yeah, like Dungeons & Dragons was the predominant system for Western RPGs for like 30 or 40 years. Yes, and games like, you know, Wizardry and Ultima would come along and like give their own spin on it and like have different ideas and then like dragon quest came along and brought its own perspective on it and you continue onwards through the 80s and into the 90s and there were varying degrees of complexity and some games went forward and some games went backward but i would say that the history of rpgs has been maybe one long slide toward becoming kind of action-oriented experiences which i mean i know that's a generalization but do you think that's kind of fair so I think that that's fair from the standpoint of the idea that so as production budgets got bigger and as people needed to sell more and more of these games to a wider audience, they started becoming more action-oriented because that's what people felt like would connect. I didn't really start seeing the trend towards action-oriented stuff happening until like the mid to late 2000s, kind of around the time that Bioware really took off. Um, and that's around. when the uh, the isometric RPGs um, and such, the Infinity Engine games, started to die. Yeah, around the time Infinity Engine games started dying, around the time that you get, like, Kodor 2 and the first Mass Effect, around the time where Final Fantasy twelve comes out and MMOs start to really make it big. Like, it's... I genuinely think it was really was, like, MMO-style gameplay. It was the death knell for menu-based tactical RPGs. So we can blame World of Warcraft. I knew it. We can blame World of Warcraft for a lot of things. <laughs> I don't I don't think it bears the sole responsibility, but I mean World of Warcraft proved that there's a huge audience out there that would love to play these crazy high fantasy games with lots of lore and story. And so developers were like, maybe we should do stuff that's maybe a little more like World of Warcraft. And that's also kind of where you get like the Latter-day Elder Scrolls games from, too, where they became more like first-person I can't really call them first-person shooters because they're first-person melee games, but like that's you—I mean, you remember that Oblivion was like an out of nowhere massive, huge hit on the 360 in the early days. Yes, because it was a hack and slash open-world game, and you know how people enjoy their open-world games. Yeah, it was an open-world game, and it looked super cool. Um, and you could buy some horse armor. And here's the thing: <laughs> it wasn't that complex. But it felt complex to the regular person. Yeah, and that's another thing that I think is a really crucial component of 
modern RPG battle systems is that they feel more complex than they actually are. Like they want the designers want you to feel smart or feel good about the decisions you make without making those individual decisions too complicated. Um, the the air the arena where I have to make complicated decisions that went back towards wargaming and like really in depth grand strategy games. So like that's that's basically what Paradox does now. Uh, Paradox and then if um, you've ever heard of them, there's this company called Matrix. That I think is they're based out of somewhere in Europe and they make just the craziest military simulation games. If you ever really want to play a strategy game about supply lines in World War II. You pick up a Matrix game. Oh, baby. I, I tried to play, uh, was it Hearts of Iron 4? I think it was. Hearts of Iron is one of the least inscrutable Paradox games. Actually, Stellaris is hands down the, the most accessible of their games. I totally Hearts agree. Hearts of Iron is probably the second most accessible. Uh, yeah, but Hearts of Iron, like you don't even see the, the supply lines really visualized. So it's so easy to like have your... And you don't really, really understand... like. All of the equipment stuff is hidden within like under layers of menus. So oh, yeah, Par- Paradox UI is notoriously bad. All of those games have terrible UI, um, which you know a lot of early RPGs did too. Because a lot of <laughs> current RPGs do. <laughs> this is also true, but yeah. So like battles, RPG battle systems. Um, the reason why they were able to crib from Dungeons and Dragons for so long is it's about probability tables and rolling a random number between 1 and 20. And guess what? Computers from the 1970s and 1980s were really, really good at. I would say that two kind of defining examples of where RPGs are right now are Diablo 3. Yep. Which uh, is click as fast as you can, or it's like build your character in advance, walk through the dungeon and click. And there is some skill, but really it's all about how you like min-maxed the, 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 the stat distribution. And then mm-hmm. when enemies pop, they turn into, you know, uh, confetti and you get lots of loot and you continue the process. Yeah, so that's a game that's where the real battle system, like the battle system isn't that engaging. What's engaging is the strategy layer about how you engage in that combat. Um Strategy I mean, versus tactics. Yep, that's exactly where this is going. The, some it seems like the RPGs really have diverged into games that want to fo- you to focus on the strategy of building your characters, um, which is where the Final Fantasy series has gone. It's where some Western R- it's where most Western RPGs have gone. Um, and then there are those that want you to focus on the tactical elements and don't really care so much about the strategy layer stuff, which are have mostly diverged into strategy games like XCOM um, and like um, the Ogre Battle series and uh, what's another what's another good tactics game that's come out within I don't know the last oh um, XCOM X, yeah XCOM I was also thinking of uh, Endless Legend is a little bit more like that of the people who are like going uh, RPGs cannot be action based um, and still be an RPG. I think they can be action-based. It depends on... To me, the defining aspect of an RPG is the role-playing element of it. You are creating or inhabiting or personalizing a character. 
who is an avatar that goes into the world and interacts with it and, and its residents to go on some kind of grand quest, which, you know, like this is getting into the whole definition of an RPG thing. Like, it's our favorite topic are, around here. I know. There are a lot of games that have that kind of thing now because RPG elements, like I'm sure you remember as well as I do, that used to be something that people would put as a bullet point on the back of a game box, like in the mid to late 2000s. <laughs> To say, hey nerds, this isn't just for the bros who play Madden. No, no offense to you who plays Madden. <laughs> I'll have you know that I am totally a bro who plays Madden. Which is totally fine. Madden has a lot of RPG elements in it, it these sure days. It does. So no, I think it's totally fine to have these games that have more action-oriented stuff. The places where I think that it's really weird, maybe not, I don't want to say objectionable because you know these games can do whatever they want. It's been the Final Fantasy series that I think it's been the strangest to see it in um, from Final Fantasy XII onwards. Because those games, like Final Fantasy XII and Final Fantasy XV, I like them, but I don't like them because of the combat or because of the strategy of how you design their, your characters. I actually enjoy them because of the stuff that's going on in the world around you. Um, and I think that they're still RPGs because you're leveling up, you're fiddling around with like your abilities on a grid to customize your characters. You're kind of setting up um, opportunities for your characters to link their abilities together, or you're defining what they'll do at certain times and places. So there's still RPGs, but the part that you and I grew up with in the nineties thinking, Oh, this is an RPG where I select fight from a menu. Like that part of it is gone. And what's left is all of the other stuff. So I listed out some of the, like, kind of the familiar battle system characteristics. And uh, and this kind of goes for all RPGs, right? Like PC, uh, console, Japanese, Western, whatever. Um, and I, I'm wondering if I missed anything. So I'm just going to list out some of them really quickly. Uh, yeah, classes is one that often appears um, and goes all the way back to, you know, the original wizardry, of course. And like further back to that than D and D and in turn, like party roles um, specifically the, the Trinity of like DPS tank and healer um, limit breaks uh, specifically like trying to have like some kind of a super attack. Right. And like being able to do a huge amount of burst damage. Uh, in fact, burst damage is totally a thing that I didn't put on here, but uh, <laughs> same thing, kind of the same thing, but for example, like if you're playing, if you're playing an MMORPG or something, like that moment when you do an alpha strike, like you just put, you dump everything into your weapons and you try to do the highest amount of DPS possible. I mean, that's burst damage, right? Versus right. like I have a bar now and I'm just going to press the button and I'm going to do quad uh, like ten times nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine damage. So yeah. One requires a little more skill than the other, in my view. Um, I've never been able to get burst damage right. The people who can like pour out insane amounts of damage in MMORPGs just make me shake my head. But uh, the role of healing magic um, is always like a big question mark in a lot of MMORPGs. Um, like, how powerful is it? Like, how early in the game are you going to be able to get group healing um, versus just single target healing? Um, the power of the healing. Uh, it, can every character heal or can just a few characters heal is 
the healing centered on a character or is it centered more on items? Like the role of healing, I feel like defines a lot of RPGs. Yeah. Um, like the role of magic in general, um, offensive magic, defensive spells, whether or not offensive and buffs are even considered in the same category of spells. Um, how are spells limited? Are they limited by spell charges? Are they limited by MP? Are spells limited? Are spells divided into spells and techniques? Like, the, there are all of these categories that spells break down into that kind of get a little weird. And that's because um, spells are OP. Yeah, they really are. I mean, like, spells are designed to be the cool thing that your character does that helps the battle go faster. Um, that's sort of been the way that it's been designed since Dungeons and Dragons. There's always been like really low level baby spells so that your mage can actually engage in combat. But the really good stuff always costs a lot and you kind of bust it out when you need it the most. Um, and it's, those are the things that help define a battle system is like, what are the abilities like? How are they limited? And how do I invoke them? Or when do I invoke them? Um, some battle systems involve things like positioning, um, area of effect versus single targeting, and things like how do encounters work. Um, that's really the one thing where the presentation of the game and the battle system of the game like really kind of meet is the, how do encounters work. Like uh, you just finished Chrono Trigger, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, for the longest time, that was the only JRPG where encounters happened on the map, and that was relevant because you could normally see the encounter before it happened, and if you were smart, you could walk around it all together. Yeah, and I thought that that was really cool. It also made for a much more interesting dungeon design because uh, you could kind of chart, well, you could kind of map out the encounters, and you could subsequently make things even more balanced or you could tailor certain encounters to certain moments in the game oh yeah if you really want to see that taken to its logical extreme um watch a chrono trigger any percent speed run it'll be somewhere between i forget how long they normally are uh it'll be somewhere between two and a half and like three hours and 15 minutes but it's fascinating to watch the stuff that they do to manipulate the encounters and the random number table used by the encounter system. It's it's really crazy to think that people have figured this stuff out and that they can complete a game that in-depth in the space of like kind of a lazy afternoon. The people, I, I gotta say, the people who can do the, who can crunch the numbers and min-max a battle system to an inch of its life like as far as i'm concerned they have like godlike powers because uh math is not my forte uh i am just not very good at that and like for example like going back to my days when i was like a competitive battler in pokemon like one of the key aspects of maximizing a pokemon is distributing your stat points accordingly you get 252 points and you want your certain stats to be at a certain number. Like you're looking for, you know, like speed barriers. Like, okay, I have to get this number over one point over this number so that I can ensure like a one hit KO or I can ensure that I'm fast enough or I can ensure that I can take a hit from like a, a critical hit from this particular attack. 
And the people who could like weigh all of those variables in the course of constructing like a character who will fill the perfect niche in their party, like those are the people who would always, you know, they're the ones who win, right? Because they always bust out the most immaculately uh, tailored monster that was completely counter to the metagame and then completely sweep everybody out of the building, right? So. And that's where numbers and RPGs are always going to live on. Like, no matter any kind of competitive RPG, I sort of feel like, especially Pokemon, Pokemon is never going to go away from this. The day that there's an action-based Pokemon game... is the day it's dead. (laughs) It will be the day that so many people, like, faint and die. Oh, yeah, I would would stop playing it entirely at that point. But, I mean, another great example, of course, is also MMORPGs, right? Which goes back to, like, D&D, like the days of D&D, where, like... You would sit there and you're like, okay, okay, well, my party role is DPS. Um, I know the exact abilities that I am going to need to maximize my role in the party. And I am going to get this particular armor and everything. And I am going to divide everything up. And then I have a calculator that says that when I do this, 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 and this at the exact right time, I will generate the optimal amount of damage to be able to uh, take somebody down at the right time. Um, yep. All about setting up the rotation. One thing that I always, well, kind of left me in awe was when I, back in the days when I played Star Trek Online. And Star Trek Online was not a great MMORPG by any stretch of the imagination. And its battle system wasn't amazing. It was often kind of broken. But the core of it was so much fun because we'd be sitting there on vent and we would be, this being before the days of like, you know, Discord and all that, but we, I would be the engineering ship and I would be like doing burst healings whenever they would tell me to, but there would be that moment where they'd be like, okay, we're going to go grab that ship and kill them. And then they would go, go. And the science ship would send out a tractor beam and grab them. Um, I would start firing everything I possibly, uh, I would use all of my debuffs at that same moment to like reduce their armor and their hull and everything. And then the tactical ship would fly in and just like launch in huge spread of torpedoes and phasers and all of that. And their shield would just melt away instantaneously and they would be dead. And if you didn't get that perfectly, they would be able to recharge their shield so quickly that you would be like, well, that, great, failed. So, And then you would probably be in a position where you might end up dying. But I find that aspect of min-maxing in a battle system really interesting. Yeah, and there are, are, I mean, there are just people who love doing that, too. Like, for a lot of people, that is the appeal of an RPG, is getting to sit down and min-max everything. Um, I which suck at is... min-maxing, but I like t- having people tell me when a like what the optimal build of a character is so i can be like oh yeah now it's time to go wreck some fools yeah that can be kind of fun um i've never really (laughs) been that much of a min maxer i guess i was like back in high school when i could spend all my summers playing a final fantasy game but i'm a min maxer in like a video game rpg but like if i'm playing tabletop like i'm much more like yeah whatever like i guess as long as my character can do their job and yeah. like they're kind of interesting and fun to play like i don't care yeah oh and actually this is a good point to mention that um tabletop gaming at this point is also moving away from D style stat systems a lot mm-hmm. um there's been a huge renaissance in the indie tabletop space over like the last five to seven years or so 
um, where a bunch of game systems have come out that are called Powered by the Apocalypse Systems. They're based on the Apocalypse World rulebook, which is, uh, you've got six stats, but everything is just 2D, 2d6, and here's a table that the GM gets to read when you get less than a six on a seven to nine and on a 10 plus. And then it's more about the storytelling aspect than it is about the combat aspect. Um, and the rules are very clear about that for all of these games. So it's, it's similar to how RPGs, um, video games are moving away from turn-based, like heavily stat involved combat because tabletop gaming now is also more interested in telling a story than having players just engage with a bunch of numbers. So I wrote down some notable battle systems. Um, here are a few that I, I was kind of like ended up listing. Um, Ultima 3. Yep, very important. Ultima 3 was the first top-down um, multi-party member kind of class-based game, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, it certainly defined a lot of the aspects that we have kind of come to know um, as the Western RPG, I suppose. It coming, and, it, and of course, it was amazingly, like, the graphics were amazing for its time. Yeah, it, between Ultima 3 and Wizardry, I think that's pretty much defined the Western RPG up until the late 90s, up until the Infinity Engine stuff. Yep, I, I would say so, yeah. Uh, another one is Dragon Quarter. Yeah, Dragon Quarter is really good. It's a really inventive battle system that kind of blends um, strategy and positioning with traditional menu-based combat. Um, the way that it uses essentially movement and action points and the game's timer itself as all combat resources is really interesting. Um, I really love Dragon Quarter's battle system a lot. It's a seriously underrated game. Uh, the Temple of Elemental Evil. Which I've never played, and I don't think I've ever even heard of before, so you're going to have to school me on this one. It's a D&D game. Um, it uses the 3.5 rules, and it, oh. where the Infinity Engine was going much more kind of action-based and that kind of thing, um, or at least we were training in that direction, I suppose, right? Like, the Infinity Engine games were popular at the time when Temple of Elemental Evil came out. Temple of Elemental Evil was notable for being really hardcore in terms of, like, its depiction of uh, D&D rules and also fairly inscrutable. Um, it's developed a cult audience in the years uh, since, but back in the day, it was, like, pretty buggy. So people uh, were pretty hard on it. But at the time, I mean, even now, like, but at the time, like, it developed an audience because... It like people liked the initiative system that it used, um, in terms of like how far can a character go during a battle? Like, when do they go? How far can they go in terms of movement? Like, how much reach do they have on their weapons? Um, their like counteractions, like, movement is extremely complicated in Temple of Elemental Evil, and mm -hmm. um, of course, like, and they kind of treat it like you're rolling dice, right? Like, saving throws and that, all that stuff, so. Uh, among a certain segment of RPG nerds, it is uh, pretty highly regarded. Well, there's a huge set of people who are super passionate about 3.5, so yes. that doesn't surprise me at all. 
Well, wasn't it 4.0 that a lot of people were like, ah, it ruined it. We need it too action-based, too uh, simple. Yeah, 4, 4.0 is the one where you actually had like card decks for spells and abilities and stuff. Um, it, they tried to make it a little more board gamey, and people who'd been playing D&D since 2nd edition, they did not like that at all. Um, and it's just not Dungeons and Dragons. It's something else. It, like, it's fine, but it's not Dungeons and Dragons. Four point is when I came in, so and I didn't mind it. I found it a little rote, uh, to be honest. It's like, okay, well, this encounter demands that I use my daily. So, all right, I used my daily. Great. Like the decisions almost seem to be made for you um, in Ugh. a lot of respects. Yeah, I didn't play enough of Fourth Edition to really know that. I think I played Gamma World a couple of times, which was a system based off of Fourth Edition. Okay. Uh, more notable battle systems, Grandia. Yeah, Grandia has that really cool um, action real-time system where if you time everything right, you just interrupt the enemy's attacks. And yes. it's, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a really smart combination of rhythm game and JRPG action-based system. There's a, um, there's a really strong kinda, kinda element like, of risk-reward uh, to it in the terms yeah. of like you'll be going, oh, crap, okay, will I have time to actually be able to heal? And there's that moment when you're watching the two gauges rush down to their go point, and you know that if they hit their go point before you do, you're dead. Yeah, it's a really good system because of the tension that it creates and because of the opportunities that it gives you to to feel really good. It's one of those systems that's Again, very simple, but it makes you feel really awesome when you pull it off. I know that the the Z-Boyd guys are huge fans of Grandia and having incorporated it into their various games. Um, yeah, I, I think it's actually worth mentioning the Z-Boyd games because all of those battle systems tend to be very interesting. I don't think that they necessarily hold up for a full game, Um but they're always fascinating experiments. And, yes. I, and I know that on this podcast... Uh, Z-Boyd is a friend of the show. Um, I would really recommend to people who are interested in battle systems in general, like on a Steam sale, pick up a couple of their games for five bucks or whatever and try them out for a couple hours. You'll you'll have fun with it. Play Rain Slick Precipice of um, Doom or whatever it was called. Um, the oh, Penny Arcade for one. For three. Uh, that was number three. So they for did real? Ep- that's, that's the one that I haven't played of theirs. Yeah, they uh, because... Uh, it's an interesting mixture of Grandia and Final Fantasy XIII um, with the really super duper beso- really super duper bespoke encounters, uh, which cool. that almost function as kind of like puzzles. Um, I enjoyed them. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Also, they have a they have a pretty good sense of humor. Like, I mean, their writing is hilarious, and uh, there's a great moment in Penny Arcade Three, I think, where like. They go back in time, and that the result is that they're in an eight-bit game instead of a sixteen-bit game, and the graphical palette like completely changes. It's actually kind of awesome. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yes, um, I, I wrote here Final Fantasy everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's job systems. I mean, every Final Fantasy is just a little bit different in its own way. Um, I, I would suspect that a lot of people would kind of point to maybe Final Fantasy V as like maybe the the best example of a Final Fantasy battle system gone right? Yes. 
Um, and I think that even the ones that don't quite work are re- at least really fascinating. Like Final Fantasy VIII and Final yeah. Fantasy XII are obviously the wildest experiments outside of Final Fantasy V. And I've got my problems with both of those games, but what they're trying to do is at the very least interesting. We talk about Final Fantasy. And it's just so different from every other game out there. We talk about Final Fantasy way too freaking much on this podcast, but I really would like to go back and just do a Final Fantasy VIII retrospective because... Uh, oh, when when you do, I would love to be on the show because Final Fantasy VIII is actually my favorite Final Fantasy. It's my favorite Final Fantasy too. Oh, but it is so div- div- divisive. Uh, there's a guy who comments on the site occasionally. I don't know if he's still listening, um, but he he hates Final Fantasy VIII. So if I ever say Final <laughs> Fantasy VIII, like he'll just appear. Oh man, great! You'll get to find out if he's still listening in the comments today. <laughs> Exactly, right? So, yeah, no, Final Fantasy VIII is my favorite one just because it's so breakable. But, I mean, I mean, how many companies, I, I swear, like, could make something that was massively popular and was, like, uh, like just universally popular in part because its battle system was so streamlined? And then there you go. And for our follow-up act, we're going to completely change everything and get extremely experimental and crazy with our battle system. Like, we're going to just... What- do away with all conventions. Yeah, well, I mean, like, this is a whole other podcast, but, like, Square's late 90s output is just off the wall. Yes, it's like, so great. everything that they did, basically, between Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X is just completely nuts. And, of course, there's also the Persona and SMT games, um, which we've also discussed a lot on this podcast, uh, where uh, Demon Negotiation, to try and add them into your party... Um, elemental weaknesses uh, to kind of get movement action chains going, uh, deciding whether or not you want to have everybody do a full attack to try and do enough area effect damage to take everybody out at once. Yeah, the, for the SMT games really interest me, um, and the Atrian Odyssey games too, to a lesser extent, because... The, those are the games where the combat system like isn't super complicated again, but it all comes down to resource management. It's all about managing every single resource that you have at your disposal in the most efficient way possible from encounter to encounter. Um, and that's really interesting to me. Like um, Persona 3 back in the, what was it, 2008, 2009? is the game that brought me back into the JRPG fold after I fell off after Final Fantasy XII, maybe, maybe even earlier than that. Yeah, uh, I, I think that there, in some ways, I think the Persona games in particular don't go quite far enough um, in terms um, of, like, when you get to a boss battle, it starts, you, you start to feel maybe the lack of higher level strategy, um, you are doing the same things over and over again, right? Yeah. So the the one SMT game that I think that has that problem the least is probably Strange Journey, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe just the best SMT game overall, the more that I think reflect on it. I, I, I would concur with that because it's certainly one of the most complex and it brings all of the aspects of SMT in, the, the ones that kind of get forgotten a little bit by Persona at times, like... Um, you know, like the 
the light versus the darkness or so chaos versus order and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then at the, actually it's this point, it's worth saying that the thing that I really adored about persona five is it finally brought demon negotiation back to persona. Yeah, that, that was really nice. Um, and yeah, I appreciate the demon, that. The demon negotiation itself wasn't great, but no. it was nice to see it there. Yes, I agree. Uh, I will, I will say this for SMT battles. Um, often the boss battle kind of functions like a puzzle. Um, and you have to use certain abilities. You have to figure out like what abilities you need to be using, right? Like it's like, oh, this boss, like when they are going to do a thing, I better have like my defensive shields up, essentially, or I will die, or it will like profoundly mess me up, or like, yeah. oh, this boss is mostly like this particular element, so this this character better not be in here, or I better be uh, using different personas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the actually the SMT game that that's most prevalent in is probably Nocturne. Um, because people get to that matador fight and then just straight up give up. Um, cause that is the fight where in that game where it super matters what your turn order is, which demons you have, what matamas you've leveled. Uh, like it, that is the ultimate resource management choke point in any SMT game. And it drove me crazy. Weirdly enough, uh, final fantasy 13 is another example of that happening. Um, there's a particular boss where like the game is like kind of holding your hand, holding your hand, holding your hand. And then there's a certain point where it goes, no, you must engage with the mechanics of this battle system now and understand it or you will not advance. Ooh, that's rough, especially for a Final Fantasy game. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think it's a good approach. Uh, It's a little overly punitive in my mind. Yeah, especially for like Final Fantasy games, at least from Final Fantasy VII onward, they have kind of a really gentle onboarding slope. And then the battle systems, you know, they range in their complexity, but they certainly never do something where it's like, okay, we've held your hand for, you know, the last ten, five to ten hours or whatever. Okay, great. Now here's something incredibly complicated for you to do on your own. And I can't think of a single other Final Fantasy game that does that to you. Yeah, Final Fantasy thirteen was weird in that regard. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a weird game in general. I don't I don't like it. All right, some questions for you. Okay. What makes a good battle system? Um big question, I know. Yeah, it is a it is a deep question. I think it really is I want to say that it's a lot of resource management, like under knowing that the choices that you make matter, uh, which is something that I think is just really important in game design in general. And the best way to do that in an RPG is either resource management like SMT does or higher level strategy like Final Fantasy VIII does um, or just moment-to-moment decision-making like Grandia does. Like that's a, Those are all really good examples of the ways that you can use a JRPG battle system to make intelligent decisions. Um, and then on the Western side, like the some of the Infinity Engine games, like... Um, Actually, the first Fallout, I really enjoy the battle mechanics of the first Fallout. They're super janky, and they're a little weird, but the way that they interact with all of the other systems in that game, especially the conversation system, is very pleasing to me. I like the idea of having a conversation system in a game. I I like being able to negotiate your way out of combat at times. Um, Torment, uh, Tides of Numenera, really takes that to its logical extreme. Oh, yeah. Torment is really good at that. Um, I don't like the encounters in Torment quite as much as I like them in Fallout. 
for just for whatever reason. It must be a personal preference thing. But yeah, Torrent um, Torment is absolutely kind of the pinnacle of battle system interacts with conversation system in the Infinity Engine. So one thing that I really like to see out of a good battle system is do the tactics like continue to escalate? Is there a point where like uh like there's a surface level where it's like, okay, I am in a regular battle and I am just doing something to quickly get out of it. And then if the battle is like stronger, then I can go level up and I can like like break out some like higher level abilities or some like higher level tactics or that kind of thing. And if I can get like say three levels deep on that, then I'm like pretty happy. And like some examples of like being able to like use limit breaks or it's like, okay, like it's time to break out like my really hardcore combos or that kind of thing. Or no, no wonder you like Valkyrie profile so much. Oh, the thing with Valkyrie profile though, is like you're constantly cycling just through the constant limit breaks. I like the feeling that I can, I have a trump card as it were. Um, Like I have something in my back pocket that I can bring out during a battle rather than just using the same attacks over and over again to kind of hammer them into the ground. Not just escalation of the system over the course of the game, but escalation within a battle. Yes. Like, weirdly enough, a really good example of this might be like Super Robot Wars, where at the beginning of the at the beginning of every map, like you have to build up your will. And the way you build up your will is I mean, it can vary, like you get abilities to build it up faster, but you know, getting attacked or attacking an enemy or evading an enemy. And as your will grows, like you unlock more and more powers. And you you were talking about resource management like that is a great example of resource management because you want to maintain your energy and you want to maintain like your uh spell your spirit points so that you can use certain abilities at the right time when you eventually get to the boss like you're trying to use your abilities in the most efficient way possible as you are clearing the map and when you get to the final boss that is when you start like pouring it on right like you're using okay i'm using my most powerful ability i can use like character combos and like a lot of these characters have a variety of different combos that you can use um you can use uh as an example like some characters can enter into seed mode or like new type mode or whatever right and now they're in like super mode and it's like okay i'm doing even more damage and i'm going to pour on like the offensive buffs as well and i'm going to also use an item that's going to make me even more powerful and i'm going to use this at exactly the right moment to dish out the maximum amount of damage like when i have a lot of options in that regard i am the happiest hmm. yeah i can understand that i'm gonna need to play super robot wars yeah. it sounds like uh play super robot wars uh was it the the one that just came out actually v because it's actually in english Oh, okay. Is that a Vita game? Uh, it's Vita and PS4. Oh, if it's on PS4, I can actually pick it up. Yeah, you can get it. You can play it. Um, it has Yamato and Evangelion and uh, some others that you probably recognize. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was really enjoying it, but I've played so many Super Robot Wars over the games over the years that I've gotten a little burned out on the series. Yeah, I can understand that. At a certain point, uh, once you've seen one Super Robot Wars game, after after a certain point, you've kind of seen them all. But all right. Yeah. What is your favorite battle system? Oh, of all time, of all JRPGs, it's probably Dragon Quarter's battle system. Really? I think I think that's the one that really hits the sweet spot for me um, in terms of doing the resource management, but also it plays a lot like a strategy game. Um, 
and strategy games for me are kind of what I've gravitated towards as I've gotten older to get the satisfaction I used to get from making clever decisions in JRPGs. Um, I also really like Strange Journeys uh, battle system, like I said, but I don't think it's quite my favorite. I think it's the best of the SMT series, which is my favorite mainline JRPG battle series or uh, battle system. But yeah, Dragon Quarter for me is definitely the one, um, especially the fact that those abilities that give you the those powers to escalate when you really, really need them, they also decrease the amount of time you have left to complete the a run of the game, um, which is which is to me is a fascinating trade off, um, especially because death in that game and restarting has relatively few consequences. All right, I'm going to get really granular in my choice. I'm going to say Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. <laughs> I was saying earlier uh, in an earlier episode that in my opinion, like the series should have just stopped after Pokemon Diamond and Pearl because while the games themselves got better, like I don't, I didn't think that you needed to go past Pokemon number 500. <clears throat> like once you got to God, it was good, right? But more than that, like Pokemon Diamond and Pearl at that point was maybe one of the most, probably maybe the most balanced that the game was. And yes, I know some Pokemon fans are going to be like, well, what what about the fact that it introduced, um, uh, shoot, Shark Dragon or whatever. Um, I can, can't remember his name at the moment, but Landshark, uh, which was extremely powerful, or the fact that Salamence was overpowered. Yeah, whatever. Like, there was a wide variety of monsters that you could use. The power creep was not as evident as it would be in even the next generation. And it introduced a lot of stuff that I really liked about Diamond and Pearl, which, for example, like the Choice Scarf, which suddenly threw all of the speed tiers completely out of whack and like added an entirely different uh, element of trying to figure out enemies where you're going, oh, crap, are they wearing a Choice Scarf? Uh, do I want to take that risk? Like, there's a huge amount of risk-reward inherent to that. Also, like, Choice uh, see, uh, choice bands. No, choice bands were in Ruby and Sapphire, but whatever. In any case, uh, and it also uh, added things like they added the move U-turn. Uh, so suddenly you could have a, a core where it's like you are sending an enemy or you send a character in and you're kind of scouting, right? Like you're going, am I, you're scouting for the switch by using U-turn. So you use U-turn, you hit them. And if they leave too, then you know, okay, like uh, they switched out. But if they stay, you're like, aha, now I can use the perfect counter and send them in, right? And there's a strong scouting component to Diamond and Pearl in general because you do not get to see the enemy teams before the battle begins, which is something that you can start doing in black and white. So in many respects, Diamond and Pearl was like the last time that I was really super duper engaged with Pokemon to the point where like I was actually trying to be uh, really competitive and I like I miss that like I had my favorite team a lot of my monsters were still viable in the years that that would follow like a lot of monsters simply stopped being viable because of the amount of power creep in the games that followed Pokemon Diamond and Pearl was a sweet spot I know that some people will disagree with me but that was where I was happiest I mean now it's just like all freaking legendaries like you just go to an event like the Pokemon World Tournament or whatever and it's like ugh five billion legendaries you're like oh great that's that's no fun (laughs) i don't like that it's all like one-off legendaries dominating every team like legendaries were still kind of under control back then (laughs) 
Yeah. So I think that that's interesting because that's something where you're coming at it from the perspective of competitive Pokemon, right? Like the things that you're describing are things that I just don't see in Pokemon games because you never have to make that kind of guesswork or you have to make those kinds of intelligent decisions. This all comes out in the battling stuff. Right. You don't see it during the single player when you're fighting a gym leader, right? Yeah, you, and that's that's interesting to me because I've never really gotten into Pokemon multiplayer. Um, I only jumped on the series with XY, which is probably part of why I never did because the introduction of all that online infrastructure stuff opened it up to cheating and everyone had their legendaries that they just wanted to sit on and those were their the things they'd battle with and all that kind of junk. Truth be told, the only way that I find that's really enjoyable to play Pokemon anymore is to play the browser, uh, to play it on the browser. Like, just Oh, are there browser simulations yes. of black-white? Oh, that's interesting. I might have to check those out. Uh, uh, it's called Shoddy Battle, I think, or they might have moved on to a different one. Um, Pokemon Showdown. Pokemon Showdown. All right. I might have to check that out. That seems like an interesting kind of thing to... Because Pokemon is one of those series that I never really got the appeal of. And I know we've talked about this in the past before at some point, probably like years and years ago. Um, but yeah, the, the what you're describing to me now actually sounds interesting. And it might, sounds interesting enough that I might actually give this um, online system a shot. Yeah, the problem with the regular playing in-game, uh, along with all of the things that you were pointing out to, like the rampant cheating uh, online, is that... It just takes too darn long to uh, raise up a Pokemon, even with the considerations that they include, which makes experimenting with a new team a complete pain in the ass. So it's much more fun just to go online, build a team based on like the recipes that are put out, to mess around with the stats like just in-game, and then just battle people. And you won't have to worry about cheating you can play like every permutation of Pokemon that you could possibly want. Like the online community is really strong and you can play any version you want. Like the rules in like black and white and X and Y and all that are like unnecessarily limiting and it's really frustrating. Um, I personally prefer like six on six versus doubles. Like a lot of people prefer doubles because that's the official format um, and it's what it's kind of balanced for. But I prefer the old school like six on six classic format. So Yeah. Uh, I don't play Pokemon competitively that much anymore, but if when I do go back, it's usually to Pokemon Showdown. But all right, we're almost out of time. But really quickly, least favorite battle system: Final Fantasy II. Oh yeah, I mean Saga games. Like I really do not like those. So I'm going to say the Tales of series um, because I find them. I mean, it's just hack and slash. Like anything where I'm just sitting there repetitively hitting hack slash, hack slash, hack slash until something is dead. Um, Maybe dodging around a little bit is actually quite boring to me. And maybe Tales fans, maybe you can come in and tell me why your particular series is like deeper than all that. Like I'm aware that there's like stuff like cooking and that kind of thing. And I've played a few Tales games in the past, but I've always been pretty bored by the battle system. So uh, it strikes me that the main core of the appeal is the sense of humor and like the, the story and like kind of the light visuals and just kind of how fun it is. And like the battle system doesn't figure into it. And as such, I am not a big fan. 
Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any Final Fantasy II defenders. Um, yeah. Maybe some Saga defenders. And Saga's battle system is definitely much more refined and way more interesting. But Final Fantasy II is just so tedious. You sit there punching each other and then healing each other for a couple hours at the start of the game, and then you're good to go. <laughs> All right. Well... Do you have a favorite battle system or do you have a least favorite battle system or do you have thoughts on everything that we've talked before? We would love to hear from you. Send us a note uh, on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Um, Steve, what, what's your handle again? At a tweeting twit. Yes, or you can send an email to usgamer at usgamer.net. We will probably read your responses on the air next week, but... In the meantime, Axe the Plug Out is the U.S. Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, follow us on all of the social media channels, um, including the ones I just described, the underscore catbot at a tweeting twit, U.S. Gamernet. We are uh, streaming every Tuesday and Thursday. And, of course, our new flagship podcast, the U.S. Gamer Podcast, where we get together and talk about games that are not RPGs, if you're into that sort of thing for some reason. I don't know why you would be. Uh, come join us every Wednesday for that and make sure to subscribe on iTunes. Uh, if you are enjoying the show, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Uh, we would love to hear from you and we always love to hear from our fans. Steve, uh, are you playing Splatoon 2? I am not. I do not have a Switch yet. Um, I'm buying one this month thanks to the Dragon Quest Builders 2 announcement and whether or not that game gets localized, the Switch is region free and I will be playing it. By the way, uh, sorry for not talking about DQ Builders 2 on this episode. Um, That's partly attributed to Nadia being gone, but if you want to hear us talk about it briefly, you can go check out the US Gamer podcast. We do devote a small segment to it, but uh, the reason I mention is because uh, the Splatfest happened this past weekend. The topic was ketchup versus mayo and somebody had drawn uh one of the meverse posts that said uh say ketchup of the blood god which i fully approved of oh yeah i saw that on uh on your twitter all i know is that mayo won and people are very upset yeah go mayo Woo! <laughs> i don't like either of them but mayo is better than ketchup team mayo uh, apparently ketchup had like 73 percent. but any case uh yeah so we will be back as usual next friday where we will continue talking about rpgs the genre that we love and uh hopefully delving in as deep as we did in this episode i I had a lot of fun talking at length about battle systems it's always fun to get really super geeky about the about the genre oh yeah it's always good Uh, and it's always fun being on the show yep steve we'll have you back again at some point in the future but in the meantime for Steve and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again. And until next time, happy adventuring.